With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome back to the Lynx Golf Podcast. This is digital editor Al Lunsford with Lynx. I just returned from a quick trip to New Jersey, literally there for 24 hours to go up and visit Baltusrol Golf Club, one of the nation's most historic, classic, perennially top-ranked clubs, uh, 36 holes of A.W. Tillinghast golf, and we were there to see the unveiling of the lower course after its restoration at the hands of Gil Hands. Uh, what he wanted to do essentially was to restore the features from the original Tillinghast design uh, while also implementing the latest in technology and, and agronomic practices, adding precision sub-air, things of that nature, while restoring uh, the design features and shot values that Tilling has so geniusly implemented here. Baltus Roll, as you know, is, is one of those clubs that has a surefire championship pedigree. The lower course itself is hosting TID major championships, but they've had 16 total USGA championships, two PGA championships. You probably last remember Baltus Rawl from hosting the 2016 PGA Championship, won by Jimmy Walker. Phil Mickelson also won a PGA Championship there in 2005. Jack Nicklaus won a couple of U.S. Opens there. You'd probably recognize the iconic logo. It's a red golf ball with the golden wings on the sides of it. Baltus Rawl has a certainly prestigious reputation. You're going to see it in the upcoming years as it hosts the KPMG Women's PGA Championship in 2023 and the PGA Championship in 2029. Gill was tasked with keeping the golf course a challenging test for those skillful players while enhancing the playability for the members themselves. And his idea was what better way to do that than take what Tillinghast did uh, because he did it so well. So obviously, hey, I'm I'm not the expert here. Let's hear from the man himself who led the restoration project. I had the chance to sit down with Gil when I arrived at Baltus Roll, and the first part of this podcast is my interview, my conversation with Gil about his work behind the details and his line of thinking. He will also begin work on the upper course at Baltus Roll starting in 2024 after the KPMG Women's PGA Championship. So both courses at Baltus Roll getting the gill hands touch and returning back to what Tillinghast originally envisioned for the club. Here's my conversation with Gil. Afterwards, I'll take you through my 24 hours staying overnight at Baltus Roll. Congratulations on your work here. I haven't had a chance to, to walk out there and see, but... Um, from pictures and everything I see, it, it looks incredible. Thank um, you. Thanks. Yeah, I, I actually hadn't been here since December, so I rode around with the superintendent this morning, and as expected, he's done. He and his crew have done an amazing job presenting it, and it looks it looks good. I'm actually excited to go play it. Yeah. So, what can you talk about the the process of you know when you uh, met and and gave your proposal and 
why you decided to say, hey, I want this to be Tillinghast and, and not really someone come here and say, oh, that was Gilhans. This is more so right. Tillinghast. So we, uh, I, can't, I can't remember what year it was, either 16 or 17, uh, came here and walked the golf course with the committee and walked all 36 holes and then came in and we had a meeting, I think it may have even been in this room, and just presented the vision, what I what I thought, looking at what was out there, what I thought was consistent with Tillinghast, what was not consistent with Tillinghast, and said, listen, if you guys want to consider Jim Wagner and I to do the work here, then I think it's gonna, we're gonna want to put it back to Tillinghast. And that's been a consistent theme for us from job to job to job, no matter whether it was 1995 in North Hempstead, the first Tillinghast golf course we ever worked on, or whether it's you know, or late 2000 teens and, and a, a place like Baltusrol. So I think from that standpoint, whether it's Ross, Rain, or Tillinghast, we, we've always been big believers that those guys were so good, and that their work is is so deserving of being protected. Um, even though it may have to update it for the modern game, but it's still important to present it in a fashion that, that's consistent with what they believed in. And I think that resonated with the committee, and literally the next day they called and said, okay, we'd love to work with you guys. Yeah. So we were excited about, obviously, any chance time you get to work at a place like Baltus Roll, you get excited about it. Right. When you say there's, you know, there's some things that still existed from Tillinghast and some things that had gone away, um, where do you make those touch-ups? Like, what did what did you have to do specifically? Well, I think the the things we looked at were, you know, trees. Obviously, you know, had, had encroached on the design. It was it was a little bit bigger, more open canvas. Uh, looking at greens, how they had shrunk over a period of time, maybe losing some hole locations, um, but also losing contact with the bunkers around the edges. So I think it, it was it been three or four yards of rough between bunker and green, and just looking at the old photographs and reconnecting, you know, green and bunker, and then looking at some of the the contouring around the edges of the greens and the edges of the bunkers where Tillinghast in the old photographs it was clear that the green was the high point and sort of your focus. And over years, through the evolution of the course, there had been uh, a lot of dirt mounted up to the outsides of the bunker, so that the framework of the green complex was different. Uh, tees and, and trying to get them to plug into the ground, telling us never really built a ton of elevated tees, so dropping tees back down and getting them so they weren't so far out of the landscape. And I think it's just those types of touches, fairway contours, et cetera, et cetera, that you know, required a comprehensive look through the entire property. And the, the thing that Baltusrol had, an amazing archive, mm-hmm. right? So it has right. so many images from early U.S. Opens and from tilling us during construction and aerial photographs. And so we had a wealth of knowledge at our disposal to basically look at it and put it back together as he had originally thought it should be. Yeah. Um, how do you, when you go into a place like this with so much championship pedigree and history, um, is it difficult to, to toe the line with trying to keep it that way and and also make it that much more playable for the members and you know an all-encompassing restoration that satisfies right. everybody yeah that that's the right the, that's the magic sauce in golf architecture yeah. right make it playable for the 30 handicap and challenging for you know tiger woods uh it's one of those things that in restorations our primary focus is on getting back the tillinghast version of the golf course and in, to a certain degree, we trust that he 
figured that out when he was laying out the golf course because he was obviously a great golf course architect and that's something we all strive for. Um, in, in ways that are more concrete, we looked at, okay, if we're taking bunkers and we're moving them downrange for where the championship player hits their tee shot, now we've necessarily taken them out of the range for where the average golfer hits it. Mm-hmm. All right, if the championship golfer is trying to advance their ball to this point, can we widen the fairway short of that point and allow the, the members a little bit wider playing quarter because the championship player would never really choose to stay that far back? Yeah. Uh, can we add forward tees? You know, people always talk about, well, what are the most important things you do with tees on a golf course? Is it making it longer? It's actually making it shorter. Is getting people to play the golf course from the right set of tees. And right. So if you move the forward tees forward, then the seniors can move forward. And there's this domino effect of making the golf course more playable. So those are more of the concrete aspects of what we tried to do to make it more playable. But the rest of the golf course, it's not like we said, okay, let's open up the fronts of all the greens. Well, Tillinghast did that on some holes, but some holes he took that away from you. And so we were more consistent to his design versus the thought process of how is the average golfer going to get around the course. Mm -hmm. I think whenever you're a member or a guest coming to a place like this, there's an expectation that it hosts major championships. So it's going to be difficult. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like somebody's coming out here expecting to shoot their career around. Right. Uh, as long as they don't leave here going, God, I never want to go back. Yeah. If they walk <laughs> off and go, hey, you know what? I had fun. It was hard, but it was supposed to be hard. Then I think that also gives us a little bit of leeway to maybe tilt the scales a little bit towards championship. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to someone who the last time they saw this would have been 2016, maybe, um, either coming here or watching on TV, um, to the next time they'll see it in 2023, KPMG or, or PGA, um, what will be strikingly different? What will they notice that's, and they can point to and say, like, that's specifically mm-hmm. something that they changed. Well, I think the bunkers, number one, um, the treatment we've given them with the, the eyebrows or eyelashes, however you want to, with the fescue on them, um, I think that that's certainly a different texture and more consistent with the old kind of rugged bunker style that we saw in the old photographs of the golf course. So that will be number one, uh, the shapes and the forms and how they sit in the landscape as opposed to sitting uh, on the landscape. I think the green, the, sky, the size of the greens is something that I hear a lot about. It's just the scale of them is massive now that mm-hmm. they've been restored back out to their original size. And I also think that one of the, the cool characteristics is the, that really is you'll see the relationship between the edge of the green and the edge of the bunker is now really tight. Yeah. And it's, so it's back out where that. So I think that when you look at photographs of the of the course pre-restoration <clears throat> there's a lot of green grass and a lot of sort of larger landforms um, kind of pushing the landscape down now i think everything feels like it's plugged into the ground and, and almost pushing the, the greens up and i think that that's that may be something that's not that perceptible to the average fan so i think the bunkers will definitely be for them and tree removal but I think for the people who really love to study classic golf courses, that, that'll be the most striking change. Yeah. When, uh, when you were going through the restoration of the lower course, I know you're going to do the upper course as well. Mm-hmm. Um, were, did you have points where you got, like, got ahead of yourself and started looking back <laughs> over that course too? Not really from this construction. Although the one thing we did is a, is a bit of a precursor, which I'm not looking forward to, is when we were rebuilding the Sahara, I was in mm-hmm. the bulldozer in there, and I realized the closer we got to the upper course, 
the more rocks there were. And so my back was getting jolted and bouncing around quite yeah. a bit. So I think thinking, oh man, the upper course is going to be a bear to, <laughs> to do the to do the earthworks on it. But no, we didn't. Um, we were pretty well focused down below. And I mean, but we're excited. The upper, I think, is the better piece of property and could potentially be the better golf course. And the nice thing about it, we were discussing this this morning with the club uh, on their podcast, is it's a bit of a blessing and a curse. You know the. The lower course received all the attention and all the championships, you know, since the 1930s. And so a lot of the changes and alterations have occurred there, whereas the upper has just been left alone for the most part. So it's a lot closer to Tillinghast. Mm -hmm. So there's not as dramatic um, a need to reverse changes up there. So we're excited about, uh, I, I think that course, when we're done, will feel more familiar and probably be less of a jarring change to the membership than the lower has been sure 2024 is the timeline yes, there closing in uh, november of 23 mm -hmm. and same timeline as and then all through 24 yeah when you have a lot of these projects going on at once do you, do you find difficult to to juggle and, and <laughs> tunnel your brain back to which one no i, I mean the the one thing that's that's nice is that I'm so intimately involved in the process of putting together the master plan, you know, working mm -hmm. with our associates and working with Jim on it that I feel, you know, I feel like when I show up, I, I, I know what we're trying to accomplish. It may be like, okay, where are we headed today? You know, which green are we working on? Um, but when we get to that hole, I, because we were involved in doing the plan, I, I, I remember what needs to happen on there. Now there's a few times where I'll say, Hey, let's, let me see that plan again, because I was at Oakland Hills last week and we, Maybe I've got these holes a little bit mixed up, but once we get in the right mindset, we're we're pretty pretty squared away. Locked back in. Yeah. What's your favorite hole out here? I think it's always the hole that always strikes me as really being very interesting is is fifteen. Uh, I think you know you you you're through that lower paddock. You know you go in seven and you come out on on 13 and then 14's got some nice topography but 15's where you start to really get back into the good topography and I just love the way that green site's perched up on that hill and the bunker the configuration and the scale of it I think the tee shot's now interesting we kind of put back the triangulated bunker system that, that Tillinghast had out there so I don't know if it's my there's a favorite hole but it's the one when I when I first walked the property 15 mm -hmm. was the hole that was like wow okay yeah. There's some really good potential here. And then obviously the finish, you know, 16 is tremendous, 17 is iconic, and 18 is really terrific. So I think, yeah, it's quite a finishing stretch. Last question. Once you get back to those major championships, mm -hmm. what is someone going to have to do well to play well here? I think this is always, you know, it, it's a great driving course i mean you gotta drive the ball you gotta put it in play mm -hmm. because these greens now with the infrastructure underneath them the ability to keep them firm all the time you know sub air suck, sucking the moisture out of them uh the ability to you know sand base greens hopefully the presentation is going to give itself to being you know firm surfaces and if you're trying to come into these firm surfaces from in the rough I don't think there's going to be much success. So I think it's really, it's going to be, because the greens themselves have wonderful slopes and contours to them, but they're not extravagant mm -hmm. in the way they move. They move, but they don't, you know, they're, it's, they're not like wingfoot screens with the really dramatic contours in them. So I think here it's more about just driving the ball well and getting yourself in play. Very good. Thank cool. you. Thank you for your time. Appreciate My pleasure. It. Thank yeah. you.
Thanks again to Gil Hands for sitting down with us there at Baltus Roll. Obviously a humongous opportunity to, to really learn the ins and outs of his restoration there. Now let's get to my day, my 24 hours almost exactly at Baltus Roll. Uh, it's in Springfield Township, New Jersey, and for whatever reason, I decided to fly into LaGuardia. So we're starting there, getting up at 3 a.m., feeding my son, my six-month-old son, real quick uh, at 3.45 in the morning before heading out uh, for Savannah Airport, flying to LaGuardia, hopping in a rental car, and driving the about an hour uh, route to Springfield Township. When you arrive at Baltus Roll, it is one of those places that has the Iron Gate and comes out of nowhere. Fairly scenic route driving from New York. The skyline, obviously, then you get on into New Jersey and it starts getting into more of a suburban type of atmosphere. You take a turn across the street from Baltus Roll as a church and you take a right turn into the gate. Gate Master is very happy to welcome you there. One thing that stuck out, Gil gave a presentation that morning, and he talked about one of his friends. He didn't mention who it was, as to not embarrass them, but he said the measure of a club that this friend takes is a simple question. Is this a happy place, or is this not a happy place? It's an easy way to assess your experience once you've gotten through. I I think the other measure I heard someone say is the 14-hole test. Once you've gotten through 14 holes, are you, do you wish there were more holes left to play? Are you sad to be ending your round soon, or are you kind of ready to move on? Baltus Roll, I would describe as a very happy place. The membership was super welcoming from the moment you got there, from the guy at the gate to all of the members that were in attendance for the media day, ready to drop everything and show you around and and give you their personal experiences at the club. So I arrive, I pull in, I know that I have a conversation with Gil coming up. I've got a little bit of time, I talk to Gil, I'm staying in the clubhouse and try to check in, my room's not ready, so I'm kind of waiting around, just grab a cup of coffee and just generally explore this clubhouse. The clubhouse itself is unforgettable. It's a, it's a stunning place. The clubhouse was built in 1910. It's 8,500 square feet, classic two-door revival architecture. It's got seven dining venues. There are 24 overnight guest rooms. The men's and women's locker rooms are vast, and everything is screams tradition, screams history you know walking through there there's all the memorabilia from past championships they just updated their scoring room essentially you walk in right before you walk into the men's locker room they have this small room that's an ode to major championships past so you have on the wall these plaques of your major champions jack nicholas lee jansen phil jimmy walker There's a picture of them, and then encased is their original scorecard from their final round where they would go on to win their major championships. Uh, There's also a Mickey Wright plaque that Baltusrol is the only club to host U.S. Opens for the men and women on its dual courses. And then also encased are the U.S. Open and PGA Championship trophies uh, with a map of the upper and lower courses in between. 
it's sets the tone for a very unique and special experience to get ready for our round we had a shotgun start i was going off the ninth hole a par three and beforehand you walk up the hill right next to the clubhouse to the performance center which has a two-tiered practice range massive you're hitting into the side of a hill it's a it's a very cool visual um, there's a lower tier that has 26 bays I walked up to the upper tier, which is on the other side of this new performance center, um, with another 15 additional hitting bays. Baltus Roll has a, a cool, in the, the bin of balls, has uh, a little marker that, that gives you the exact yards for the day to each of these flags of different colors and, and checks and patterns. Very sleek looking design. Wasn't sure who I was playing with on the day until I got to the carts to shot to shuttle us out to our shotgun start point and saw a familiar TC logo on the golf bag next to me. I was playing with Tom Coyne, who I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with. His books, a course called Ireland, a course called Scotland, and a course called America. Most recently, he's a very accomplished author and a very entertaining guy, if you can get a sense if you've read his books and get a sense of his tone and his demeanor the way he approaches golf is it's so refreshing and as a plug Tom's book of course called America just came out I know he talks about Baltimore a little bit uh, but go get his book if you you need a good golf read and haven't already gotten it it sold out as right when it came out it was around Father's Day and it sold out which he was also surprised by but uh, what a great golf partner. We had our own little side match. Our team consisted of me and Tom and two members, Scott and Sally, both very good players in their own right, and we just had a wonderful day. The only negative of the day was probably the fact that it rained the majority of the time, probably 12 of our 18 holes we were playing in the rain, so you had to battle the elements out there, but what a wonderful walk. Never had a hole-in-one, but about jarred my opening shot, so that set an unrealistic precedent for my round. I think I went on to double bogey two of the next three holes after that, uh, after an initial par. But got my bearings a little bit, probably about five holes in. Starting on nine meant that we had a long stretch of par fours, but it also meant that once you got to 17... 17 plays as a par 5 for the members, as does 18, as does 1. So we had a stretch of three consecutive par 5s. The pros, actually, I think will play 18 and 1 as par 4s. 18 is where Jack Nicholas hit a 1-iron, famously, and there is a plaque for his shot. It's probably some 225 yards out, I would say. You know it was a good golf shot if they have a plaque for it. My shot wasn't exactly the same from a similar distance, but I still did end up having a par going back towards the clubhouse on 18. You heard Gil talk about some of the design features on the course. Briefly, I'll mention a few that caught my eye. Obviously, the great Sahara bunker on 17 is a daunting task to clear. If you don't have a if you don't have a very good tee shot on 17, it makes clearing the Sahara a tough test. I gave it my best shot. Ended up, there's a little walking caddy path through the Sahara bunker, and I ended up 
right on that path, almost up against the, the lip there of the bunker. Tried for the hero shot to advance. It ended up just plugging it straight into the side face there and having to take an unplayable. That's all I could ask for, though. All, all you want, you know, I'd rather hit out of the Sahara bunker than just walk through it, right? So at least I got my, my taste, my, my fair shake from the Sahara there. Other things of note that just kind of stuck out to me, there's no secondary cut, so you've got fairway, and then you go straight into the rough, which is pretty thick. It's it's all new right now, so it really grabs the ball and is, is not easy to get out of. If you go even further into the rough on a lot of holes, there is this added fescue. I got into the fescue on the second hole, which has sort of a mini Sahara uh, up near the green in par 4, and it was uh, a hack show trying to get out of that thing. I mean, I was lucky to advance it on my first try, but uh, you are going to lose a lot of balls in that. We almost didn't find mine. Gil talked about lowering of the features. It, the ground almost blends in uh, with the surrounds, with bunkering, and with water hazards. On 18, there's a big pond and that flows through on the left-hand side. It's almost like you could just walk... Uh, right and step and not even step down and, and walk right across the water. Um, when there is water, when there's creeks or, or lakes to navigate around, Baltusrol has these really cool stone bridges that you get to cross. feels sort of Swilkin Bridge-esque a little bit. It just makes for a very nice visual touch, and it's certainly good for pictures. And then the whole time you have views and you can see the upper course up the hill, uh, from various angles, didn't get to play or, or walk the upper course, but was told you could see the skyline from there. I could see the New York City skyline from my room in the very far distance. I guess it's really not that far away from New York City, about 15, 20 miles. So as Gil mentioned, interestingly, once he's done with the upper course, maybe that one has the upper hand, but the lower course certainly has more history. A lot of the bunkers have added these wisps of of grass. The members there call them eyelashes, and that's certainly something that stands out as you walk around the course. Gil rebuilt all the greens. The greens now contain 20% more putting surface on average. Again, getting back to Tillinghast's original thoughts and adding more hole locations for the members themselves. The fairways were made wider. They were also twisted a little bit rather than the straight lines, which Tilling has said robbed the course of character. And then up near the greens, they're accessible, so there's nothing, no center line bunkers on the approach to return a feel of the ground game that, as Gil said, Tilling has so fancied. It seems overall everything is more accessible, more receptive, but the challenge is obviously still there. The greens aren't crazy. There's not a ton of sweeping elevation, but they're in great condition. They roll really well, and you got to pick the right line to make some putts. Now, maybe the most interesting fact I learned about Baltus Roll came from Tom, and, and I later learned uh, they have this video board that they've installed in the men's locker room, an interactive thing where you can touch, and it has whole flybys that describe the features of every hole on both courses. They also have a tab for stories for these legends of Baltus Roll that 
obviously live with a club that was founded in the 1800s, of course there's going to be legendary tales to tell. And you may be thinking, Baltusrol is such an interesting name, where does that come from? Well, the land on which the courses now sit used to be owned by a farmer by the name of Baltus Roll. And on February 22, 1831, two men burst into the house of Baltus Roll, ripped him from his bed, and dragged him out into the street, tying him up and leaving him in a puddle of icy water. Baltus Roll was murdered in cold blood. Now, interesting enough, while this was happening, Baltus Roll's wife ran and hid in the woods until the men left. The two men responsible were named Peter B. Davis and Lysidius Baldwin. They were criminals looking for a way to get thousands of dollars, and after their crime, Davis had been taken into custody. Baldwin learns of this. He takes to a room in a tavern outside of town and kills himself of an apparent overdose. At Davis's trial, there's this overwhelming evidence that would seemingly find him guilty. However, the jury acquitted Davis of the crime. But he was actually indicted on four charges of forgery, convicted on all counts, sentenced to serve 24 years in prison, and died while in prison. So they were never charged with the murder. But the affair caught the attention of New York newspapers. There was wide, sensationalized coverage and now, of course, Baltus Roll's name is immortalized in the mountain where his home had been located at the golf club of his home name. Apparently, you can still visit his tombstone in the Revolutionary Cemetery in Westfield, New Jersey. After the round, we had cocktails, uh, a nice reception in one of the seven dining spaces in the clubhouse, and seeking out dessert at the advice of, of one of our waitresses, Tom as well as Cody and Big Randy from No Laying Up, who were there in attendance. We decided to go into town to the Magic Fountain, which was very popular. A, a large young crowd there on a Tuesday night. Apparently that's the place to be. So we topped the night off with some Magic Blends, effectively a McFlurry. Oreo, of course, is my choice, uh, with some chocolate sprinkles. So I stayed overnight at Baltus Roll in the clubhouse, the rooms are quaint, exactly what you would need. Mine had a fireplace in it. It overlooked the course, and it was just delightful. Got up in the morning and took the drive through New York traffic back to LaGuardia and flew out. It was a wonderful 24 hours, and Baltus Roll is high on my list of favorite places I've ever been now. The history, the quality of golf, everything about it was just first rate, and the people were probably the nicest parts. So for me, Baltus Roll, definitely a happy place, one I would look forward to returning to, and one that will shine when it gets its chance to host more major championships to come. So that's our wrap on Baltus Roll. I'd love to hear if you've played out there, your experience, or maybe if you've been to a tournament, what you thought of the place. Great things are ahead for this club as it gets back to its roots and is on display in the next few years at major championships. Certainly this iconic club and one of the best tests in golf has found a way to get a lot better moving forward by going back with Gil Hans.